You're listening to a podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. I'm I'm Tom Johnson, and I'm talking with Ricardo Amigo, who is a podcaster and translator down in Mexico City and Costa Rica. And today we're going to talk about technical writing as a field and different aspects of it. Uh, th- this podcast may be especially of interest to people who are new to the field or are trying to learn more about it. Um, Ricardo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, our group is uh, uh, Amigo Audio, uh, which is uh, registered in Costa Rica and in San Jose. And then also uh, we have an office in, uh, or an associate office in uh, uh, Mexico City, which is uh, called Soluciones Sin Papel, uh, which means paper-free solutions, or as close as we could get to that. And we used to do a lot of, uh, or that office in Mexico City did a lot of data capture. And then uh, in Costa Rica, I, I began this thing of doing audio. And we have at our site, which is AmigoAudio.com, there's a lot of audio. Uh, so we've done both translations uh, to text, and then we will record uh, those translations uh, to audio if that's what the client wants. And uh, we've done a lot of glossaries, uh, English, Spanish, uh, also in audio. And you also translate software interfaces, right? Yes. Uh, we've done a lot of, uh, of uh, independent softwares. Uh, we've translated the interfaces, and we'll do a little manual for the software uh, in Spanish. So, so actually, this is a service that could be really relevant to different technical writing firms. If you need your manual translated into Spanish, you guys can do that, right? Yes. Cool. Yes, in fact, we did one of yours. <laughs> you know, you helped us with uh, the one you wrote for uh, WordPress. That's right. Uh, yeah, we did that into Spanish, and it's at our website, and it's in a um, pay, uh, what is it called? bilingual format with the English on one side and the Spanish on the other. Yeah, that was that was cool, and uh, you know, I think it's it's great that that um, you guys have this ability to, to take and go from English to Spanish. You're obviously um, completely fluent in both. I, I think that's a tremendous skill. Um, and and I, I mentioned this earlier, but uh, <clears throat> I did spend some time in Venezuela. I used to speak Spanish, but it's one of those skills that if you don't keep using it, it just, at least for me, it just kind of has, has atrophied. Boy, I know what you mean, because I've had that problem in English. Uh, If I don't speak English for a couple of months, which happens, uh, suddenly, you know, the words don't want to pop up as you're trying to find them in your head. Where did you grow up in? Uh, Well, I was born outside of the U.S., and I began education um, uh, in uh, first in Puerto Rico and then in Mexico. But in third grade, I switched uh, to uh, U.S., education and and apparently it was just exactly the right point because I didn't have a real hard time moving into English. I was very lucky. Cool. Well, let's get into the content of the of the show here with with the topic that we're planning. And this is going to be a little different because usually I'm the one who's driving the interview and 
just getting as much information as I can out of the person I'm talking to. This way, this interview is going to be a little bit of the reverse. So, Ricardo, I'll let you just uh, start out with whatever angle and question you want to pursue. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I I know a lot more about you uh, because I listen to your podcasts. I I don't think I've missed any of them, and I I read a lot of your blogs. Um, And so, as as I understand, Tom, you began in in English uh, writing and literature. Is that right? Yeah, I have a English degree in uh, from Brigham Young University, uh, just in English literature. You know, your standard like it, it encompasses literature and writing and, and other things. And then I decided I wanted to be a writer, so I got a degree in creative writing at Columbia and ha- have an MFA, which isn't really that helpful. <laughs> the degree in creative writing and. So that's my educational background. After that, I I spent a couple of years as an instructor of composition, so teaching students how to write in college. But teaching wasn't for me. I wanted to turn to professional writing, so I became a copywriter for for a while. And a copywriter uh, is just basically somebody who writes all the marketing material for a company, um, pretty much. And after that, I, I found my way into technical writing. Um, I don't know if you want me to give more detail about that, but basically that was my path. Yeah. I would like to know how you found technical writing, because I found it through you. Well, you know, there are not that many careers that somebody can have uh, if your background is in English and you want to do writing. There are not that many careers that are financially viable. If you have a family, you can be the starving artist and and just get by and live in a bedroom off somebody's house, you know, and, and write your novels all day. But that doesn't work if you have a family, right? You have to have some kind of job that makes money. And I tried my best to do that as a copywriter. But to be honest, copywriting is mostly just writing. And nowadays, writing is, is not really valued. It's not valued like many technical skills are. And and so I realized that I wasn't going to make enough money as a copywriter, and I thought back to what a colleague once told me when I was a teacher. He said, Tom, you would be a perfect fit for technical writing. And it always sounded so boring to me, but I figured, you know what, if it can make money, I'll do it. So I, I had a good portfolio of writing samples, um, I learned a help authoring tool. I just learned RoboHelp and put together a sample help file of something. And I submitted my portfolio to to a company that hired sort of uh, had a lot of technical writers. And they hired me. Actually, the the um, hiring manager had a PhD in biology. And one of my like writing samples was this great description of protein. Huh. And she found it really uh clear and so anyway so, wow. so that's what helped me get in the door yeah well and about when was that that you moved into technical writing uh that was at least five years ago um so about and as i understand that technical writing has just boomed uh in that time you know it fluctuates so technical writing was actually a super hot field before the dot-com crash 
it was really booming and it was a great time to get into it. Um, when it fluctuates with technology because when you have engineers writing something, they're going to need somebody to write help files and, and explain what they're creating. So as long as the tech sector is doing well, tech writing does well too. Now, when there was the crash, uh, then tech writing kind of crashed too. And now that um, we have this recession, you know, it's not so good as well. But by and large, it is one of the most popular fields. I think in a 2006 survey with, uh, I don't know what magazine, Forbes or something, it was named the 13th best career or job in America. And, and wow. that's because it kind of piggybacks on engineering. Yeah. And I think now uh, it's it recognized as a, it's a specialty. There's certifications and things like that, training. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely recognized as a, as a field, as a unique field. Uh, people are technical writers or technical communicators, and there's, there's lots of variety. Um, as far as certification goes, though, that's somewhat of a controversial point. Some people feel that, that certification is just really a waste of time. And really, to be honest, I, I am kind of one of those people who's in that camp. If people are trying to break into technical writing, they don't need a certification or they don't need to be, they don't need any kind of course that gives them a certificate. What they need is a good writing sample. It's kind of like if you were, if you were hiring an artist to do something, you know, do you really care if the person has a degree in art? No, you want them to be able to paint. So if they can show you that they, that they have this painting ability, then it qualifies them. In the same way, if, you, if you've got writing samples that demonstrate your ability, that's all you really need to, to break into this field. Wow. And is it still primarily writing help materials? Um, not really, to be honest. I, I mean, it depends how you define help. Most people think of help as a software manual. And that is a trend that is going down, in my opinion. I don't think people really like software manuals. They really like, at least in my experience, they like quick reference material, like one or two page, nicely nicely designed uh, help content. They like video tutorials. Um, and then, of course, they like online help uh, and so forth. But by and large, like the long manual uh, is not the core function anymore, at least in my job. It's kind of like one of those things where you produce it, but it's not what you get excited about. Yeah. Well, in one of your blogs, you wrote that many technical writers are moving to structured authoring models. Um, can I have no idea what that means. Can you tell us what structured writing means and, and is information architecture kind of mixed in there? Yeah, and this is actually a really interesting point. And and it is a little a little bit techy here, but not really. Okay, so if you're writing structured material, you're usually writing it according to an XML structure. So you have a set of defined tags and an order that those tags have to be in uh, in your in your help. And if you write according to that XML structure, which is defined in another document. Um, if, if your content validates against that, then 
you have structured material. And when it does validate, you can transform it into different outputs and things like that. You can render it. You can do things with it. It's really uh, the XML component to authoring. Now, this usually gets into the topic of DITA, which is something called Darwin Information Typing Architecture, because DITA has a specific XML structure that you have to follow. For example, uh, it, you have different types of, of documents that you can create, like a task or a reference topic or something. And in your task topic, for example, you would have to use certain tags. You would need a title, a description. You'd need like steps and things like that. You have specific types of tags you can use and specific rules about what order they can be in. And, and when you write that document, it has to validate against something like a schema or a document type definition document. And when it does, then it's considered valid and, and you can use it. Now, to be honest, you know, that's kind of a trend, but, but a lot of people don't do that or worry about that. They just use a help authoring tool and it may write in XML and they don't have to um, validate it against anything. Because the tool itself now does that. Uh, well, not with structured authoring. Not with structured authoring. And there are different people. Different people have different uh, interpretations of structured authoring. Some people have a much softer interpretation, and they just believe that you know, if you have certain styles that you're enforcing and you're limiting to authors, that's that's a structure that you're giving to your writing. You know, you don't have to have these XML tags and things like that. And and I just you know, I have a I don't have a giant need. For I mean, I don't have an airplane industry that I'm trying to write for or anything. So I, I just use one help authoring tool that I can use to kind of single source my content. And I don't have a structured authoring approach in, in the, the strictest sense. And which is that tool that you use? Uh, currently, for writing online help, I use Madcap Flare. But there are, there are lots of other tools out there. There's RoboHelp, right? A lot of people still use that. There's uh, Doc2Help. There's Authorit. There's Myth2Go. I mean, there's tons. If you go to techcomtoolbox.com and, and look at the authoring category, you can see dozens of tools. Help and Manual, FrameMaker. Usually when I, leave, when I leave some out, people get mad and they write me and say, why didn't you mention this? <laughs> but, but, but yeah, all these tools, they, they each have their strengths and weaknesses. And right now <clears throat> it's actually kind of interesting because the whole, there is no real industry standard tool. Uh, you can use, I mean, they're, they're more commonly used ones, but there's no definitive industry standard like, like, Photoshop in the graphics world or something. Um, so, yeah. And these are, uh, I know RoboHelp is, is pretty, is like the grandfather. Uh, but the other, the other ones you mentioned, uh, Flare, and Madcap Flare, and uh, Doctor Help. these are newer things, aren't they? Yeah, so RoboHelp, as you say, was kind of the grandfather authoring tool. And it, there's a long history with this. Like, it was bought by Adobe, and Adobe didn't do anything for a while. Or maybe it was bought by Macromedia first, and Macromedia didn't do anything for a while. I can't rem exactly remember. But went through a period of dormancy in development, and many of the authoring, many of the developers formed their own 
new company called Madcap Flare, and they tried to create a replacement tool. And now the two are kind of like these two companies that battle against each other. It's actually good because um, they have to push each other to to make a superior product, whereas if they didn't have any competition, they probably may not have that motivation. Um, But... But that's just the online help tool side, you know. Technical writing. And that's just help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Go ahead. I'm I sorry. I actually use other tools, too, uh, just as much. Like, I, I think that video is really where it's hot right now. And none of those tools that I mentioned do anything with video. Um, some of them have, like, video capture tools. But I'm not so impressed by them. Really, um on the video capture side, the the main tools are Captivate, which is by the actually that's by Adobe too. So the two do fit together, and a lot of people use Captivate. But there's also Camtasia Studio. Uh, there's ScreenFlow if you're on a Mac, and and the whole video creation process is something that I think more technical writers need to do because it's really what people like. A lot of people like anyway when they're trying to learn software. And then, of course, there are graphics tools that are independent of these. Um, everything from Snagit to Photoshop to Fireworks. There's dozens of different tools, and the graphics tool doesn't quite matter as much as, as the authoring tool. Yeah. What And information architecture, is that part of structured writings and, and this thing called CSS? Yeah, okay, so information architecture refers to how you make information findable. It's like the findability of information. So if you go to a website and it's got a lot of pages and content there, whether you can find what you're looking for quickly is is really how you could rate it from an information architecture point of view. That's what an information architect does. Now this actually does tie in with structured authoring because when you have a specific structure, uh, you have your content structured with XML tags. Let's say that you have like an author, you have title, you have uh, location, you have time period. These are all separately identified components. You can then arrange your information based on those kind of metadata components. So sometimes, I'm sure you've seen sites where, let's say you're browsing recipes and you want to browse by author or by uh, ingredient or by time or something. Uh, that, That kind of... Um, information manipulation is accommodated through an XML structuring of the data, of the information. And, and that, that's kind of more than most people do. I mean, I, I've never created a site that pulled on different XML tags like that. But that's how the two interrelate. Wow. And you, you mentioned CSS. CSS has nothing to do with either of these. CSS, well, not really. CSS is just... Um, it's cascading style sheets. It's the, the language of style for the web, basically. It's how things look. It, it takes information and will apply a look and a feel to it. So most WordPress sites, for example, are all styled according to a style sheet that's written in CSS that determines how big the font is, what color things are, and things like that. Right. Um, Word has uh, some style abilities. Yeah, styling. Styling is that what it would be called? Yeah, sure, sure. Although Word doesn't use CSS, it, right? It, it's got its own little 
mechanism, at least as far as I know. Right. Um, and what does usability mean? I think that's, that's something I've heard a lot in your, in, in your podcasts. Well, usability refers to how easy it is for a user to complete a task. And oftentimes, usability is, is used to refer to software interfaces, because I'm sure you've opened up software and you thought, this is crazy. How's anybody going to figure this out? Well, it's not very usable. <laughs> yes, I have. On the documentation side, help is the same way. Have you ever opened a help file, looked at it, and said, I can't find what I'm looking for at all? Or this thing right. is, is this is the worst written help file ever, right? And and yeah. we can do we can apply the same principles of usability onto our help. And we do this a lot of times without thinking of it, but we we write things in steps because it's easier to follow numbered steps than it is just a, a big chunk of of a block of text, right? A bug, a big paragraph. Um, we add images. Another thing is that we provide different formats. Some people like print, some people like online help, some people like video, some people like the abbreviated version. If your help can accommodate their learning style, that makes it more usable. If you write in a conversational voice, uh, it may tend to put frustrated users at ease more. So, uh, and then there's just the standard writing for for the web type uh, usability principles uh, chunking things with headings using lists bullets adding white space keeping your sentences short and simple knowing that users are are going to be bouncing back and forth between your document and the screen and and in general uh, making it as easy to find the information as possible, putting related topics, making it searchable, doing cross references so all these things adding an index. Uh, making the help context sensitive. All these are different things that make the help more usable to people. And is, is usability something that tech writers have been moving into? Yeah, so, so if you move beyond the whole documentation usability, there are some tech writers who want to be usability experts for the software interfaces because they get tired of having to document, document poor software interfaces and they want to fix the problem or they just find that more interesting. So you can move in this direction. Um, it, it depends how big your company is and whether that kind of um, whether that kind of thing is possible. Uh, if you have that role, yes. And and as I understand, then as as tech writers have moved into usability, trying to make these programs more usable, easier to figure out, uh, this sometimes puts them in conflict with other sectors within the same company, such as the programmers. Yeah, well, whenever you start to, whenever you start to give criticism about, some, about software interfaces, hold on one second. My daughter's... Okay, thanks, <laughs> thanks Callie. I'll come down in a minute. Uh, whenever you start to offer criticism about software interfaces, you're going to get you're going to get a lot of resistance. Developers don't like to go back and re redo things. Other times, it's just hard to figure out how to make it better. Like a lot of times people will say, this user interface is terrible, but they don't have a better suggestion for how to improve it. And that, that can be something that just frustrates everyone. Uh, the tech writer, though, is, is poised to give great feedback because usually the tech writer... Is in, is in company with users. You, you train them, you receive feedback, you get 
kind of hear what people, what frustrations people are having. And you can relay that to the project team and they usually find that valuable because uh, a lot of times people don't have close connections with users. They don't know what kind of problems people are facing. So the tech writer can be this conduit for, for user, uh, user feedback and frustrations. Right. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in because of what the work we do is uh, all these new ebook formats that are coming out. Um, you know, like Stanza for the iPhone and uh, the format for the, uh, what's it called, the Kindle. You know, and then you have, I think, uh, another format has been EPUB is another format. Um, do tech writers are, are you you find that you're working into the, those areas also? You know, not really. Um, uh, the Kindle thing I've I've heard a lot about, and I think it's a cool idea. Uh, these ebook readers and and the formats there, but mostly, no, mostly the only formats that people worry about are making sure they have an online help format, like a web help type format, or a. Uh, a PDF really um, that the whole ebook thing is often more of a market for third-party sellers that have I mean that if you've if you've written huh. a software book and you want to try to sell it um, then you you put it in one of those formats actually you know I I don't have a lot of information on that on the whole ebook thing I probably shouldn't even be commenting so well, but that's interesting because then tech writer isn't. That's ebook formats may be becoming like another specialty. It could be. It could be. Now, when you when you say ebook, though, how does that differ from just like a PDF people can download that's in a book format? Well, I I think the PDF is still the most popular one, but you know the, you get these crazes that that you know the EFA, the the iPhone right now is just so popular, and so the, I, I see a lot of talk about the stanza, uh, which is will convert text and and PDFs, uh, but mainly text. The PDF is not converting well, according to what I read. But if you want to send text. To over to your your iPhone, uh, you need to use this stanza, as I understand it, and of course the same thing with uh, with the Kindle format. Well, my perspective or my question about that is is these readers, whether you're on an iPhone or you've got some other e-reader, um, you're not really sitting next to your computer, are you, when you're when you're reading these? Right. So you're not. mostly people, at least when you're writing software documentation. They want to be right next to their computer, and they want to be able to follow steps. So that may be why there hasn't been a big push to to get right. help into these other formats. Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, can you tell us, you've done a number of podcasts about uh, tech writers, and uh, that more and more, it's not just, uh, you know, drudgery work. There's more and more creativity in it. Uh, what is a, what's the life of a tech writer on a daily basis? It, it goes in cycles, and it isn't drudgery, really. There are some days that are full of drudgery, but not always, right? And, and it's the same in any job. You're going to encounter aspects that are more boring than others. But the life of a tech writer, it, it just it, it goes in cycles. Right now, I, yesterday, I was editing various documents from other departments that people gave me. 
So if somebody has a need for um, some some information they want to get out, they've written something, but they want you to make it look good. So there's that editing aspect. Other times they have a need to push information out, but they, they need you to package it into a cool uh, quick reference guide. I do a lot of that. For example, if people are merging mailboxes or something and they're going to have to walk users through something technical, they want a two-page sort of guide, you know, they, they can turn to me. I'm also documenting larger things. So different software projects are going on uh, and I'm meeting with the teams. I'm learning. I'm, I'm looking at the prototypes. I'm making suggestions, giving feedback on the prototypes, but I'm also figuring out how it works and I'm documenting that in an online help file, which will go with the application. And, and that's really kind of the core uh, function in, in most jobs. But I'm also thinking that in my help, I want to have a lot of videos. So I'm strategizing how I want to do the videos the right dimensions and, and what kind of screen resolutions I have to do it for for the users and how I'm going to approach that. So there's a lot of different components, everything from editing to online help documentation to video content to quick reference guides to, to just meetings and, and giving usability feedback on different interfaces. There's a lot that you can do as a tech writer, and it, it varies according to your role in the company and what people expect or what people require of you, but that's kind of the core function of what I do. And there is a lot of room for creativity in this field. Not creative in the sense that you're doing uh, creative writing, but creative in the sense that you're actually creating help materials. You're creating something that wasn't there before. And as a tech writer, you have a lot of control over how your material looks. Whereas with copywriters, they mainly just created the content and then hand it over to a web team to implement it or something, or to a designer to put it on packaging. But with technical writing, you're in charge of how it looks. Uh, you create the online help. Nobody else at your company is going to know how to work your help authoring tool. Uh, you're in charge of how your quick reference guides look. So if you are good at InDesign, you can you can, you can can make it look attractive, right? And you, you can use these different things if you know CSS you can style the look and feel of the online content. So basically, um, you're, you're, you have creativity in design as well as just the mere creation of things. It, it's so fascinating to me because, you know, first of all, for, if I understand what you're saying, when you, you refer to editing, that's editing the language. Yeah, yeah. Editing English. Uh, so you're still in, in that which is where you began, uh, as a, you know, in, in writing. Um, and secondly, it, it, what used, a lot of the, the things that used to be done um, by other types of editors, uh, and, and back in the days when books were printed, uh, you're having to do that too. A lot of that is the tech part, the, the uh, layout editors used to do, do those sort of things. But now you have to know all these other tech Text, uh, right? That you've been telling us about. Uh, so you, so basically, you're functioning within two with tech and writing. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of the fun of it too. Uh, when I was a copywriter, it was really boring. I could have written everything in Notepad, uh, but being a technical writer, it does combine all these tech technology, all these technical tools that you have at your disposal, and they can be a lot of fun. So if you're the kind of person who likes 
tech stuff, you know, you find it interesting and you, you're not intimidated to learn a new tool, then it can be a really exciting career because you're immersed in all this and you do have you do have these tools at your disposal and it's fun to manipulate them and, and create and learn them. I was learning Flash the, this last week. Haven't really been into that program much. Um, and, you know, I found it not that hard to use um, because I, I, it carries over concepts from a lot of other different applications. And that is definitely one of the aspects about technical writing that I think many people find enjoyable is this immersion in technology. Wow. So Flash is now another tech that you're having to learn along with all these other ones that you told us about. Well, basically, yeah. I've been, lately, I've been looking at some video tutorials that I think are really amazing. Some some that I've seen on WordPress TV, this site called MailChimp, which uh, just is some kind of email campaign thing. But the guy who's done the video tutorials really makes them look cool. And so I've been trying to figure out how to make my video tutorials on another level to make them a lot more professional and entertaining. So there's actually another program I, I need to learn too is Adobe After Effects apparently if I want to make pages flip and come in at, at angles and, and, and leave in, in different um, rotations and things like that. Uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of tools. And to be honest, I don't know if I'm really going to master After Effects. It's kind of expensive and it's really tedious, but um, I, I probably, it, it is something that I want to do and, and I'm going to use Flash as well. That's why I, why I was learning Flash is because I I wanted to be able to add dynamic motion into some of my diagrams in these video tutorials. So, Wow. It's a whole other world. Uh, you know, it's really fascinating. Uh, and, and I wanted to thank you because you're the guy who took me into it. I, I didn't know anything about tech writing until I found your podcast. Um, one of my pet peeves, um, as a translator, we work with glossaries. Uh, and glossaries everything. Before I start a project, I usually go through and I need to understand uh, the words, and I need to understand them in, in both languages, you know, so that I can translate. And I find a lot of times so many areas I can't find a glossary for. Uh, when we were doing uh, the, um, uh, the translation of, 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 of your uh, uh, hand, uh, help for, uh, for uh, WordPress, uh, I had a hard time finding what the term chiclet stood for. Which I, I finally found is a little, it looks like a chiclet, right? You know, that little, like the RSS yeah. chiclet. I couldn't find it. You know, I, 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 I wish people would put more glossaries on, particularly on the web. Because uh, uh, the, the, the web language has just exploded and technical languages just exploded. There's new words, you know, nearly almost every day. That, that's an. A really good point, especially for seasoned technical writer, te- seasoned technical writers who, who often just don't even do glossaries, um, because once you're immersed in a software project, you get used to the language and the lingo that's going on there, and the terms, and a lot of times they're techie terms that you're familiar with because you're in technology, like the word dashboard and and so forth, right? Yeah. Um, th- these these terms, we often just assume that users know what they mean, but when but when you do give them to the user, they don't understand a lot of times. Even even in help terminology, things like radio button, t- 
totally puzzles people. So I try to stay away from that, right? It's like, it has nothing to do with the radio. It's just that little circle, uh, like an option selector. Yeah, I don't um, know what it is. <laughs> so so I think including glossaries is an excellent and, and necessary thing. And I, I try to include them. And, and it's often instructive and eye-opening about what about how confusing some terms are if they if they aren't easily defined so that's a good point yeah the glossary i mean a lot of times you just can't even read the help uh because you don't know what you don't understand the terms uh and i'm not just talking about your field i'm talking about lots and lots of areas well another reason why a glossary is really important is because people often jump in to help in the middle of it right you don't read it from front to back you read it to find the that answer to the problem you're having and if you defined what um a chiclet was or something in page two and, and then you just forget about that and the user jumps into page 100 100 uh he or she's going to be lost so it's good to have some kind of glossary that would be referential wherever the user starts in the app yeah it should be there with the index you know or, or the table of contents there should be a glossary uh, that's that's easy to find. So, hey, I have a question for you, Ricardo. Do you use any kind of specific translation tools when you translate things? Um, yes, I have an old program called LNH Power Translator, which is really nice, and it's even hard to find these days. It it, it is so not used, uh, uncommon. Uh, but it has it it does both a um, uh, it has a, a dictionary like a glossary, you know, you can, you can both English and Spanish, and uh, it, it also uh, uh, has a, a translator kind of like, um, uh, what's it called, Babelfish on the net, um, which uh, uh, will translate a, an entire phrase. But what we find is that you, can't, you have to be a translator simply to get any use out of it because uh, it's only right about 50% of the time uh, when it's doing, uh, when you're try trying to translate entire phrases. Uh, you have so many words, both in English and in Spanish, that have multiple meanings. Um, in, in English, uh, my favorite example is left, because left can mean direction left, it can mean, uh, like, as in left behind, it was abandoned, or it can mean remaining, as in there is three miles left. Um, and a, a, when it, if you put that in Babelfish or in the one I use, uh, it, it has to use a default, and you don't know which one of the three. Uh, it, it's going to only give you one of the three. Um, so that left is, is probably going to be the direction left, and it's going to get, as you know, you know, izquierda. Um, uh, but that may not be the left that is being, <laughs> that, is, uh, that, that is meant in the English text. Um, there is actually a program uh, that's pretty expensive, uh, but it, it, it actually uh, addresses some of that, and as it comes to a word uh, like left, it'll ask you, well, which of these three meanings do you, uh, do you think is, is uh, being referred to? You know, there's, there's a, a related discussion that we didn't get into, but there's a, a field called simplified technical English, or a trend called simplified technical English that... For people who are writing material that needs to be translated, for the tech writer who's who's writing content, they need to 
use a, a more of a, a simplified vocabulary that's not going to have these words that have five different meanings. And and there's actually, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the company, but I can't, but there's, I mean, they have a specific sort of software that will go through and check to see uh, like your, your vocabulary and the, the word usage and, and uh, even sentence length and things like that. And it will, it will help you make it more simplified if you're writing for translation. Right now, I actually don't have... Well, I do. That's not true. Um, I do have a project that's going to be translated in like 10 different languages, and I, I haven't even given this much thought other than the fact that I don't know when the translators will, will need it from me. But I, I should go through and look at all the possible ways that the words can be interpreted and try to avoid that. So... Yeah, and of course, technical writing, you're not going to have all of these hassles uh, that you have in literature, you know, with uh, adjectives, uh, a thousand different types of adjectives, uh, and and verb forms, you know, uh, future, pluperfect, or subjunctive, stuff like that, which even I have problems with in both languages. Um, You know, uh, technical writing tends to be pretty much you know, here and now, and, and click here and click yeah. here. Uh, but in some of these other, uh, translating a, a 19th century um, uh, book, uh, I, 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 I did that uh, um, one time, and wow, it was a hassle finding what these terms were. That many of them aren't in use anymore. Yeah. So that's, Tom, I, that's about all I've got to ask you. Uh, it's been really fascinating. Like I said, it's just a, another world that, that is so interesting. Hey, well, thanks for the thanks for the opportunity for this conversation. Actually, you know, most people just feel that technical writing is really boring, and and so it's cool that you're fascinated by it. And if you ever, you know, want to get into move into that from translation into technical writing, you definitely, uh, I think, I'd have an advantage just because of your language background. So. Well, that's great. Um, and you need to tell us your email and your websites, and particularly, I think you have something called Writing River, Writer River? Yeah, so my website is I'dRatherBeWriting.com, and my email address is Tom at I'dRatherBeWriting.com. There's a contact button. And if you're listening to this on The Writing Show or some other uh, site, I'd have a lot of podcasts. If you click the podcast button, you can view an archive of tons of podcasts. There's another, while I'm here, and I'll plug another tech writing podcast, itauthor.com also has some podcasts. And I have another site called writerriver.com. is is a site where if you read something cool online, you can submit a link to it and and share that, that content with others. So it just shares the link, not the actual content. But it's a way for uh, people to share information that they find useful. So yeah, feel free to contact me, and and uh, uh, I'll also put in the show notes for the post for this podcast. I'll put amigoaudio.com and your contact information, Ricardo. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. I really appreciate it, amigo. All right, thanks, Ricardo. <laughs>